Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Vantage Point, where the vantage is the point. I'm Troy Jennings, an actor, teacher, and content creator. And I am Aaron Pope, a connector, a solution broker, and a Bible enthusiast. On this podcast, we share our viewpoints in a way that adds value to your life and encourages you to be the best version of yourself. Today, we're going to be talking about the Netflix film entitled Passing, based on the 1929 novel of the same name by Nella Larson. We'll be dissecting various themes in the film, such as racial passing and colorism. The film chronicles the lives of two childhood friends, Claire, played by Ruth Nega, and Irene, played by Tessa Thompson. The central conflict of the story involves Claire's passing for white. Racial passing is defined as a member of one ethnic group passing as a member of an ethnic group other than their own. What I think is interesting about this film is that there is a dualism of colorism within the black community and racism outside of that same community. We know that racism is not just prevalent, but to be defined is uh, prejudice or discrimination and or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of the membership in the particular racial or ethnic group, typically one that is a minority. Um, that becomes problematic for me because it's not just that you see a particular group as a minority, but that you have gone out of your way to keep them marginalized. Marginalized simply speaks to the ability to keep a certain class of people from elevating, from becoming greater. We have the 2% or the 3% for a reason. And the links that people go to to keep people out of those places is um, an example of being marginalized. The other thing that I will speak to again is not just racism, but colorism and colorism is defined as prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic group or racial group. Um, I think that these things become the complexities of passing that passing is not just engulfed in how one shows up in their race and or another, but it is rooted in one of the two places that I spoke of being racism and or colorism. Now, I know that even in this day and age, racism is a real thing. Um, having experienced it as I've grown up and still continue to experience it, to take it outside of those contexts, one of the things that we saw, particularly when COVID became a thing, is how racism kind of had a face it grew a level or, or a way that we weren't just hearing about it, we were actually seeing it. I think colorism is something that's quietly kept in the community. It's one of those things that is a, uh, a statement of the houses that we live in, and that's what happens in this house stays in this house. Absolutely, and to, go, to hint on what you said about now we're seeing it, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, this is January as we're doing this, the insurrection that happened at the Capitol not long ago is a clear example of the unequal treatment that uh, for the sake of this conversation between black folks and white folks, like if that would have been black folks, how would we have been treated during that particular time period? But a lot of the things you said, especially going back to racism and marginalization, what happens to people who are marginalized? I'm reminded of Langston Hughes who said, what happens to a dream deferred? 
And I think in this movie, we, we see that in some kind of ways. What happens to a people who are marginalized, who are not given access, who are treated in this such uh, an inhumane way? This film, again, takes place in the 1920s where lynchings were very prevalent. I mean, it's bad enough being a black person in today's society with everything we have to endure. But to not know if I walk outside, am I going to be lynched? Is my child going to be lynched? I can't imagine that. And then also colorism definitely is something that's happening within our own community because it's not just outside. It's not just, you know, white folks saying something to us, but we'll do that amongst ourselves where the closer you are in your skin tone uh, compared to a a white person, uh, historically the better treated or perceived uh, you are, or even with something like hair or the whole thing growing up. I know for me, I would hear people in my family say, especially if the child is of mixed race, Oh, she has good hair. He has good hair. You know, where, again, if your features are deemed to be closer to uh, that European paradigm, then it's something about you that's more desirable or good. And we definitely see that come to life in this movie, Passing. And I'll even speak to that. And that's just a notion of features um, based on one of the things that happens early on in the film. Uh, just where she is posturing herself to pass. But one of the things she does go out of her way to do is to cover her features. Um, I speak to that moment because it took me some time to get settled in my nose. I think it's one of my best features <laughs> now. I enjoy it. It gives me character. But there was something um, striking or about it and or experience that I can personally say I had that contributed to me feeling a level of insecurity about it. I didn't take pride in it or I didn't know the value of it and how, you know, people are going out of their way to secretly get work done and do all these kinds of things to enhance what they have because they don't have it. And here I have the fullness of it and was postured to be insecure at the time. Yeah. And that is something we've experienced from a multiplicity of different angles, whether it's a black man, black woman. I mean, especially for, for women, again, if I go back to that whole hair conversation, you know, oftentimes women will say, you know, I can own whatever hair I want to have. If you're a black woman, if you want to be natural, if you want to put something else there that that's not natural, that's up to you. But sometimes we have felt the need to assimilate ourselves to, again, be closer to what is deemed to be acceptable. Or even as a black man, you know, if, if you have locks or something like that, are you going to be accepted in the workplace? Will they look at you differently? Will you get that promotion? Will you get as many opportunities if you are seen to look in a way that may be deemed as threatening or not as attractive um, as what we are looking for? And I love that. And that's one of the biggest things that I love about passing. It does involve a bigger conversation about not just passing, but a bigger conversation about racism and colorism. Because even when you speak of hair, hair is something that's not just on a racist side. It is on a coloristic side as as well. And so it's not just something that you hear from people and wanting um, who are outside of your race and wanting a certain style of hair or type of hair, but you hear that within your own community. And that becomes the real struggle of passing to me. Yeah. And what's interesting about passing is that many things can be put in front of that. I mean, the movie is definitely dealing with, again, passing racially, but we can all 
to some degree find ourselves at some point in life passing for something. Now, if we go into the movie, this is a great film. Again, it's based on the the novel, the 1929 novel by Nella Larson. You know, a lot of people have likened it to imitation of life or to the bluest eye. I think it's very well done. It had a limited theatrical release. And again, now it's on Netflix. Great movie. It's filmed in black and white. I love that it was filmed in black and white. And I think that because it's filmed in black and white, for the actresses Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega, it was easier to see them uh, being closer to white because black and white is kind of like a grayscale, really. So it's like you can't really see the um, the specific color. So I think it really lent itself to this project. And also, I heard one review uh, mention the actual format it's filmed in. If you watch it, it's kind of closed in, so it lends itself to the tension and uh, claustrophobia that's present in the movie. I love what you said about it being closer to see them a certain way. And the reason why I say that is because it really speaks to passing. It, that black and white feature really spoke to passing and just how they did pass enough to look similar in a lot of places and spaces and just the ability to do that, which we would have lost had it been in color would have changed the dynamic of the film. I think that that black and white feature kind of spoke to passing at this point. We just want to see the talent because the black people are going to show up as black in the film and black and white, and the whites will show up as white in a film. With that being said, it did create a, a neutral kind of stance between their friendship and their involvement and how they both were positioned to be on both sides. Absolutely. And not just the black and white, the lighting, the use of lighting, I think was very well done. And I think especially for Irene. So in the movie, Claire, she is passing for white basically all the time. She's left her her family. She is biracial. She's left her family. She's married to her husband, Jack. He believes that she is a white woman. Then you have Irene, and you alluded to this earlier. In the beginning of the movie, she is passing as well. But as we come to find out, she says, I'm passing for convenience. She's married to a black man. She has uh, you know, black children. They're all of a darker complexion than her. She's very, very light. Um, but even in the beginning, her um, her head is shrouded with her hat and she's kind of very careful. So although she's going into a more upper class and more wider part of town, she's still very cautious and very careful about how she's carrying herself, that she could be exposed. But um, it's that whole thing is very interesting that she is passing for convenience and really the luxury and in a sense to be able to do that. Uh, and she acknowledges, you know, her husband couldn't do something like that. What I also think is incredible about that moment is just that she tests the waters, that every now and again, she feels the grace and the need to test the waters, to be able to say, do I still have that ability every now and again to still pass? I think that is something that is interesting to watch her navigate through um, and just how she positions herself in the movie because she is solid and secure with the life that she lives, but she does find moments and spaces to where she says, well, let me see if this will still be a thing. And that brought a question to my mind of how many people would pass if given the chance. We know historically many people who, if we focus on black folks who were 
of a lighter complexion and or were mixed race, they did pass for white. And I watched an interview with the two lead actresses here, and one of them mentioned not so much that it is rejecting being black unnecessarily from an internal space of self-hatred per se, but it's about survival. And I thought that was very interesting that if given the chance, how many of us may have decided to do that if we if we could, if me passing meant that perhaps I could go to certain places or I didn't go have to go out of my way in order to uh, go to the, this particular grocery store or you know have access to certain kinds of things. I remember growing up, my uh, stepfather told me a story. We're based here in Maryland. Uh, my stepfather grew up in Baltimore and he talked about at that time when he grew up, it was obviously very segregated here in Baltimore and many movie theaters, black people could not attend. But there was a certain movie theater, I believe it was near Howard Street, that was for uh, blacks. And he was able to go there. But uh, it goes back to the character Irene, to pass for convenience. You know, if I had access or convenience to be able to do things, would I have taken that opportunity? And then what does it cost? What does it cost someone to uh, to pass? I think you would agree with me, especially the character Claire, it must, from an internal standpoint, have cost her to be passing for white and the things that she experienced with her husband, Jack. Wouldn't you say so? I would completely agree. And it brings a particular scene to mind where Irene meets Claire's husband for the first time. And they're in an exchange about who she is. And there is a joke that he ends up calling her uh, N.I.G. Uh, I won't say the word, <laughs> um, but... As a nickname, he gives Claire that nickname. And when he's asked how he feels about uh, black people or African-Americans, he gets to the point where he says, oh, I don't like him. I just call her that because you would think that or she has their ways. And how could she mm -hmm. have those ways? You know, it's like, you know, somebody who isn't supposed to have rhythm, but does <laughs> or somebody who can't cook, but can, you know, it's it, it's one of those things that he makes very light of that. And I liken that to what you're saying about the cost. What is it costing you? Who are you pretending to be and or who are what part of yourself are you giving up to have what you think? you want. Um, I also want to speak to just the sacrifices on the other side and being a black man in America. I've been taught to do certain things, um, particularly in the judicial system. Uh, you don't want to go back and forth with a police officer. When you're in your car, you don't want to have to ever reach for anything. You keep your you know, wallet and your stuff in places where they can see you reaching for them. Um, I've got friends who keep the, their wallet on the dashboard just so they don't ever have to go in but these are the things that we've been taught to skillfully do to speak to your point about survival. Yeah. And no one should really have to consider those things. But those are definitely conversations that black parents will oftentimes have to have with their children to let them know what to expect to in order to how to survive in the world that we live in. And with the character Claire, I believe there's one point that her husband Jack says, the longer we're married, the darker you're getting. And I'm wondering how much of him calling her Nig is based on the fact that her skin is getting a little lighter. So it's kind of like an inside joke that her skin is getting uh, getting darker. So that's why I'm calling you this. But what must it be internally for your husband to do this? And then it's almost like I'm wondering, 
how that must feel like at any moment. Do you think you may be exposed that you, you'll be found out? You know, we see that with Irene, how careful she is in the beginning with not really making direct eye contact and things of that nature. And her hair is covered because her hair perhaps could be an identifying feature to let them know that she's not white. But what must that be like for Claire to do this full time? So it's all the time inside. She may have this internal struggle, whereas Irene, every now and then she can choose to step into it. But, uh, you know, Claire has chosen to do this for her whole life. And it's funny because I think about, you know, women who have gotten tans and things to be a certain way or to show up a certain way and how that's acceptable. But to be, you know, chocolate, I love my chocolate sisters <laughs> to uh, to uh, see them show up a certain way. It's just like, oh, my God, it's this, that and the other. It's shunned in one area, but acceptable in another. It's so fascinating. I remember in high school, a lot of the uh, the white girls in high school, they would tan oftentimes it was it's fascinating they had an obsession it seemed like with tanning a lot of them and you know before prom before homecoming they had to go and they had to tan and they have to go in the tanning bed but at the same time you know at the end of the day they were still they were still white they just had a tan but bleaching and skin creams are still very prevalent and a lot of black people whether male or female they do put those kinds of things on to lighten their skin or the use of makeup. We've even had a lot of controversy in the media where different celebrities may be criticized because they come off as looking lighter than they are in the photo shoots that they do. And sometimes their response is, I didn't know it was going to turn out that way. The editors and the powers that be in the magazine, they just decided to lighten it to, again, make it more palatable where we're still leaning towards that whole thing where the, the closer you are to being white or lighter, the better it is, even in our society today. And it's funny because I hate like pictures that I've taken um, of people who know me and just know anything about me. I have eczema. So it was just me just trying to get my skin clear. <laughs> I wasn't trying to lighten it or brighten it or do a certain thing. I just wanted it to be clean and clear. Glory to God. We've stepped into that place. <laughs> I praise him for it. Um, but just that was a thing for me. It was never a thing of, you know, I don't necessarily know that I wanted to be a lighter complexion or anything like that. I just wanted what I had to be the best it was going to be. I will say when I was younger, I believe in elementary school, there was a time where I wanted to be white when I was very young, probably like six or seven. I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but we're so inundated with these images, whether they are in print media or visual media, where it could be something uh, conscious, unconscious, something in a family gene somewhere that thought came to my mind. And it reminded me of something that many of us have heard about the Clark doll experiment. And this was cited in Brown versus the board of education. So what this is, is in the 1940s, psychologist Kenneth and Mamie Clark designed and conducted a series of experiments known colloquially as the doll test to study the psychological effects of segregation on African-American children. Doctors Clark use four dolls identical except for color to test children's racial perceptions. Their subjects, children between the ages of three to seven, were asked to identify both the race of the dolls and which color doll they prefer. A majority of the children preferred the white doll and assigned positive characteristics to it. 
So this age, again, that's around the age that I had this. I since grew to outgrow it, and I love being black and would prefer being nothing else than that. But uh, we're taught at an early age, uh, this six to seven, what do they know about that? But there was something about looking at the dolls where, you know, the, the black doll was demonic. It was evil. It was bad. But the white, and I know I know they did this again, I want to say over a decade or so ago, and I believe the results were still overwhelmingly close to the same. So these things are taught to us at a very early age. And at this time in the 20s where this story takes place, it's even more heightened. And I was going to speak to that, just that how even now over time it shifted. Now uh, there are levels of culture where you're just going to be around different demographics and different people, but still having those valid conversations. I do remember and or recalling having a conversation with my nephew. Um, all the men in my family are extremely tall, giants in the land, if you will. <laughs> and um, I remember having a kind of conversation with him uh, when he was in late middle school, early high school, just about his responses and how Yes, he may be 15, 16, but the height of who he is and or the size or the stature of who he is will show up to be 18, 19, because that's not a thing in a particular culture. With that being said, I had to encourage him and give him understanding about his responses and just how he navigated conversations and how he did certain things, because even though society has changed and things have become inclusive in a way, they're still going to see you to be more than what you maybe are. And they're going to do that based on not just your size, but also your color. That's true. And it's, again, it's a conversation that we are having with this younger generation to know what to expect. And it's sad that that has to occur because at that age, it should be light. There should be levity about it, you know, picking out uh, something for prom or dance or, you know, your first relationship or something like that. But no, if you get stopped, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to expect. And in the movie, there's a scene with Irene's husband where he's telling his children about an incident that happened at that time with someone who was being lynched. And it's a very graphic story about how the man was hung on the telephone pole and the boy asked innocently, why did they do that? And in so many words, the father says, because they, they hate us, they don't like us. I mean, what kind of justification can you give really for that kind of thing? And I know the uh, Irene, the, the mother, she really was against the husband sharing this kind of information, uh, insisting that let them be happy. They'll learn this later. But sometimes it is that hard conversation where there is no respecting of age per se. This can happen. I mean, look at Emmett Till, for instance young man, of course, and that's happened repeatedly throughout history. It's not waiting until you become a full-fledged adult. This is happening sometimes when people are much younger. And so sometimes these hard conversations must take place when you are of an innocent age where you shouldn't have to worry about any of these kinds of things, because that is the reality of the world that we live in. And it's got to be hard. I'm not a parent, but it's got to be hard. What do you say to a child who uh, you've got to give them awareness, but also you've got to make them, again, not just aware, but pride? I think that one of the things that my father gave me that I'll never forget is pride. He made me feel obnoxiously proud to be a pope. It was something about it that was extraordinary, is extraordinary. And I live on that. 
at the same time, he did show me lessons that were a bit controversial, but show me lessons and gave me concepts and things to think about in the world that I was growing up in. I guess I would ask parents this question, and that is, you know, what do you do when you want to give information, but you also don't want to incite fear that they shouldn't be afraid, but they should be aware? One of the things I've learned about children, especially, is they often can handle more than we think they can handle. Mm. They're really small adults. Mm. So we have to respect what they're able to handle. And sometimes it, this is the reality of, of what it is. And I think instilling in them a sense of self and knowledge, that really should start in the household. Because if it's not in the household, then where are they learning it from? Are they learning it at school? Are they learning it from the television? Are they learning it with something that they're reading? Let that start at home first. Give them that foundation at home first. And once they know who they are, then they know who they're not. But if they don't have an, a, a concept of who they are, then it's kind of unstable. You're going to let that be formed by the outside world. But if we have that power, you know, that enforcement at home, like you were speaking about with your father and how he instilled that in you, that's something that even to this day, will stay with you because it was something about just knowing the quality of just who I was. Now, if that intimidated somebody that wasn't on me, my pride about who I was, wasn't on me. If you felt inferior, that's a you conversation. And in 20 and 22, I would say, see a therapist <laughs> and talk about that. <laughs> um, but just now for me, I, that would that's how I was raised. I wasn't raised to think that I was better than. I wasn't raised to think that I was the supreme or the cream of the crop. I wasn't raised that way. I was raised to just simply have pride. And sometimes what I'm coming to find out and or learn is levels of pride are intimidating. And it goes back to that marginalization. Because when you know that you have a level of pride and or you're equipped with a level of pride, it will change the margin of what you will reach for. Yeah. Yeah. We need to know who we are. Yeah. Yeah. That's very important. Was there any other themes in the movie that you want to talk about? I wanted to speak to and this may be a reach, um, but I wanted to speak to it. I thought there was something clever about the clock. And every time we heard this old time clock, I don't know if you've grown up with the old time clock you know people got phones and things that make noise and you got ringtones and carrying on but there was a time where clocks actually made noise really i didn't know that i thought it was just the one i thought it was just the one of my iphones <laughs> you mean there's an actual clock that tells time besides there my iphone used to be the old folks know what i'm talking about because they used to buy these things there are two things you won't see in a black household over uh, somebody over if the grandparents gone, you won't see these two things. One is a China cabinet. Yes, I, we all know about the China. We cabinet. know about a China cabinet. It was for show and show only. And if you ate off of that stuff, it was very <laughs> prestigious and honorable and something to give God praise for. Well, you know what? Since we're on that subject, the uh, plastic over the furniture. Oh, I remember growing up, and my grandmother would always have the uh, the plastic over her furniture. And I, I just didn't understand why. Like, what's the point in getting it? If, yes. Uh, if you got to can't even sit on the furniture. I mean, I get it for the early times, especially if you had a jerry curl, because you're not getting ready to leak all over my furniture, too. Uh, so but low, after right. that, yes. <laughs> but after that, no. But you won't see a china cabinet and you won't see a big clock. 
There used to be big clocks in black households that made noise every hour on the hour and depending on the hour, how many chimes it was going to make. And you don't see that anymore. But I thought that was clever and strategic for the time only because and again, I'm saying this as a reach and or a stretch is I would correlate that to the generation that we live in and just how they correlated her time and her nap. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, I would speak to a generation in 20 and 22 who constantly wants to be woke and mm-hmm. present and alert and know everything about the time to kind of say, oh, my God, you know, we just saying this because we're woke. It was something that I thought was very, very interesting about the time of her sleeping and or the moments where she slept that every time she woke up, she was only woken up by the times. It's very interesting because now that I'm sitting here thinking about it. One thing I mentioned in the beginning is the tension and claustrophobia in the film. But now when I think about how the clock made me feel, it made me feel very unsettled because it's always a reminder of the time to have like once an hour to keep hearing it. It's like you constantly are reminded that the time is passing. And I'm, I'm just a person. I don't like hearing um, certain sounds in general. But to me, it was it was a very unsettling sound. Even when it woke her up from the nap, it's like she couldn't... Um, fully enjoy her rest, I guess. Cause like, why do you need to, uh, you could just enjoy the nap. Like, why are you feeling the need to uh, constantly be reminded with this clock that keeps waking you up? It's and like or it, we saw her gather herself when it rang. Like she said, yeah, she was just together. so kind of disoriented. She had to gather herself by it. Mm-hmm. The last thing I would share in reference to just um, things that I saw in the film are just a moment of, curiosity and just how she was like you said earlier passing for convenience but you could tell she was trying to figure out if she was going to ever have the ability to actually fully do it though it's not something she wanted to give up and or have she thought about it and you could see moments of curiosity with her and just how many moments of curiosity rest in our culture you know who claire reminds me of for those of us who've seen the color purple suge avery the whole thing, you know, Suge Avery's coming to town. There was something about her that was very magnetic. And I would say Claire is was very magnetic. When she entered into the lives of Irene and her husband, there was something that they were both drawn to. And I think for Irene, I do think a part of her said, what if I could or chose to fully pass? Um, one of the things that was brought up in the beginning of the movie for Claire is that in order to pass, it came with a cost. And I don't think Irene was willing to pay that cost because if she was to to pass in that kind of way, that means she wouldn't have her husband. That means she wouldn't have her children. That means she wouldn't be connected necessarily to her friend circle or her family. It seemed like Claire was very alone. She had left so much of what made her. You know, your family, that is a part of your identity. What identity does she have? Her whole life is built upon a lie. And I can't imagine what it must be like to to live that way. I agree. And I, I'm curious as to those who would watch the film and or have seen the film, how many people would either side with Claire and or side with Irene? I think that Irene understood that she had more of a fulfilled type of situation because she enjoyed just having the grace to pass to whereas she appreciated culture and what she had, where she was, to whereas Claire gave up everything for it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think that Claire was very adamant that there was a part of her that really envied Irene's life. There was a love that she had for her life because Claire was not happy. She didn't love her husband. You know, there was some access and some things about being able to pass her wife that she enjoyed. But I think especially when she got reintroduced to Irene, because they had some years apart, they were uh, friends when they were younger. I think when she came back in her life, she really saw, oh, you know what? Uh, I am I'm missing something. And Irene was a reminder of how much was missing in Claire's life. I agree. Do you have any things that came to your mind about the movie and or any particular takeaways that you had? Well, I would say overall about the movie, if I go back to again, that we can pass for all kinds of things. We're not just passing racially, but I think that the importance of breaking down walls of conformity, uh, conformity or assimilationism. I think we need to make space to be ourselves. Ultimately, I think that as the uh, time we're in now, it's one of the most progressive times in history where we're making space for people to be authentically who they are, whether that's racially, whether it's the ideas you have, um, wh whatever that is. I think we're making a space where we're uh, more more open and we now are getting to a place where we may not feel the need to have to do that because there is space at the table for all kinds of people. I agree. I think that would be my takeaway as well. And or I'd piggyback off of your takeaway. And that's just in the notion of what are you passing for and what is it costing you and or what have you given up to accommodate it? Yeah. Um, with that also being said, I wanted to shout out to um, Howard Thurman, uh, one of my favorite old time uh, writers and authors. He talks about in the book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, about how we sometimes don't want really leaders who show us that we can have it all and be happy that we don't have to adjust we don't have to settle we don't have to be marginalized we can just authentically be exceptional i also think that this conversation is timely um, for where we are and, and what we're experiencing and what we have experienced particularly since COVID has started and as COVID continues and within this time of year, uh, it being January, shout out to uh, Martin Luther King, who his mm -hmm. birthday is on the 15th. Uh, and we observe it on Monday, the 17th, but it is just an extraordinary time because he's one of those who set up a legacy and left us with not just impartation, but an impact on what life really could be if we get out of these places and or give value to these places. Absolutely. Freedom, freedom. And, you know, definitely the dream certainly lives on and very impactful, everything that he has offered us. And I think, again, this movie is very timely. It brings up a lot of challenging things. You know, we've made a lot of progress, but it's very clear that we have a lot of progress to still go, yeah. uh, still a ways to go. But certainly do check it out. I think it's very well done, very uh, well directed, well acted. It's a great film. It is on Netflix, uh, sorry, Netflix. And we certainly do hope today that you found value in our conversation. We look forward to being back with you all again on next Tuesday. Follow our platform, Our Father's Table, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Any questions, comments, or show ideas can be sent to vantagepointpod at gmail.com. And now it's time for Fields of Vision, the segment of the show where we highlight a quote or text 
to help encourage and inspire you. People fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. Martin Luther King Jr. Speech at Cornell College, 1962. That does it for us here at Vantage Point. I'm Troy Jennings. And I'm Aaron Pope. We thank you for joining us and look forward to you joining us again on next Tuesday. Until we meet again, friends, be well.